Get the champagne ready. The NBA Finals are here. Welcome to the NBA Finals. Let's raise our glasses and our rings to the two phenomenal teams left standing. My goodness. Here's the high stakes action to thrilling moments we can't miss. He ties the game at the buzzer. And to crowning our next champion. Here's a toast to the NBA Finals. The 2024 NBA Finals presented by YouTube TV continue on ABC. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kevin T. Phillips. Eating pussy is not a science. It's an art. Thank you. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I just want to let you know that if you use stamps.com, you will save time and money that you can use to grow your business. You can avoid the hassle of waiting in line. You can create your own stamps.com account in minutes online with no equipment to lease, no long-term commitments. It's convenient, easy, reliable. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own computer and printer. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates exact postage. They'll even help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs. We use stamps.com at risk and the story studio, and we love it. And right now you can enjoy the stamps.com service with a special offer that includes that digital scale, plus a four week trial, plus postage and no long-term commitments. Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com, enter risk. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Also, folks, there is so much wonderful bonus content that you can't hear on the free podcast if you become a patron of ours at patreon.com slash risk. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash risk. We just put up another bonus story We're putting those up pretty regularly now. And we put up a lecture, a 46-minute lecture that I give to people with really, really good tips on how to 
tell a story, how to bring a story to life. If you're thinking of pitching us, oh my goodness, that is a great way to get a head start on, you know, exactly what it is we're looking for. We were just talking today, we're we're doing a special extra show in August that will focus on diversity. We want to feature stories in New York from people of color, LGBT people, um, people with disabilities, immigrants, people who are members of religious minorities, all that sort of thing. If you're in or around New York, please pitch us for our August show that's focused on diversity. That will be a part of the Speak Up, Rise Up Storytelling Festival. And if you follow Risk on Facebook, we regularly make announcements there for various kinds of stories that we're looking for. For example, we just announced that we're looking right now for stories about physical struggles, accidents, injuries, near-death scrapes, brawls, chases, overdoses, battles with the environment or wildlife, or even dreams that were especially action-packed. If you have a story or you know someone who has a story, go to the submissions page at risk-show.com, send it to pitches at risk-show.com, and include physical struggle in the subject line. But anyway, back to Patreon. If you want to help keep all of this running for a dollar a month or $5 a month, $10, $25, whatever you want, you choose. Just go to patreon.com slash risk, become a member, a patron, get all sorts of bonus content and perks and chances to win prizes and all that sort of thing and help keep us running. Okay, folks, now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Humor Deodato behind me now. And this week's episode is live from Denver. It's been a while since we've run one of our tour date shows completely, you know, for every story that was told at the show. We put it right there in one episode. This evening that we just had a couple weeks ago in Denver was just a really great flow to the evening from one emotional place to another, from story to story. And so we thought we would run it for you more or less intact. Uh, Also joining us that night were John Sonderricker and Jeremy Ruggles. Together they call themselves Complex Carbohydrates. They were playing music for us up on stage in between the stories. 
We're going to start with a comedian and a podcaster, Kevin T. Phillips. You can find him on Twitter at PhillipsKevin1, and his podcast is called Verbal Tap. Here's Kevin T. Phillips now with a story we call The Idiot's Guide to Fine Dining. band one more time oh it's helpful for the loins plus their friends on stage all right denver scale of one to ten who considers themselves above a seven at performing oral sex make some noise all right yeah all right there's a lot of bravada in the audience tonight on February 2nd of 2007, I would have said I was a 7, maybe an 8 on a good day. On February 4th, I would say I was a negative 5 with upside. <laughs> Fortunately, this story is about what happened on February 3rd, so let's jump right into it. I'm at a converted community theater space downstairs in the basement rehearsal, sitting next to a very good friend and five guys I do not know at all staring at a plastic vagina with the sign on the whiteboard that says, Welcome to Oral Sex 101. <laughs> the instructor, Lisa, greeted us the best way I've ever been greeted for anything in my life. She said, Hi, I'm Lisa. I have a background in sexually counseling, but more specifically for this course, I'm a lesbian, and I've been eating pussy since 82. Yeah. Quick aside, I also teach public speaking. That remains the best attention-getting device I've ever heard. <laughs> ever. The materials of the course are as follows. A pencil and a pad. A diagram of the vagina with all the parts labeled. Several of which were a surprise. <laughs> and a plastic vagina of the rubber variety staring at you like a cell phone in the Sprint store. <laughs> Just there. We were encouraged to get close to them and name them. <laughs> Paige got me through that course. She's a proud black woman. <laughs> and Lisa started with that same question. Who considers themselves above a seven? And my hand shot up because I was 21. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> This is fucking stupid all the time. Way too much confidence. She said, oh, perfect. Stand up, which I was not expecting. She's like, if you could just real quickly explain the difference between the clit and the hood. So I sat the fuck back down. I don't, I don't play chess with Lisa. She said, Kevin, what brings you to the course? And that's a good question. Three weeks prior, my friend is shaking across the table from me. I thought he was about to explain he's secretly gay. The wedding's got to get called off in six weeks. And I'm the friend you go to for that. Uh, and drugs, but we'll get to this a different night. He just blurts out, I'm bad at oral sex. 
Apparently, I use too much teeth and not enough tongue. <laughs> yeah, that sounds awful. Yeah. As someone that doesn't like a toothy rim job, I'm not sponsoring that. But his fiance, being the feisty little problem solver she was, didn't just tell him. She surprised him with two tickets to what was an oral sex workshop folded into a kink event. And I was like, great. You two are going to have a blast. I love this woman even more. He's like, she's not going. I fought for about two minutes before I was all in. My penis was already in the car. It wasn't for four weeks. It was like, let's roll. Lisa asked the class, hey, what's the most important thing you can do for your partner before you get rolling? Kevin, she baited me. And I was 21. I said, sure, get drunk first, right? That makes sense. She said, you know, Kevin, uh, most young women fake orgasms, but you probably knew that too, right? She brought me right into it. She just baited me. The first chapter of the course was about anatomy. There was a diagram. I've never been more nervous there was going to be a quiz at the end of anything. I was raised in Kansas. Our science and health curriculum was Jesus palming earth like a basketball. That was it. Of course, I knew what a labia was, but ad majora, it sounds like a term used in the Italian parliament. I don't know. Vestibule, that one's made up. I can tell. The clit is not technically on the inside. All right, I feel like that's my bad. I should have known that one. <laughs> to my defense, I watched a lot of Sex in the City. Like, every episode. I don't ever remember a diagram. Would that have killed anyone? Like, just <laughs> rolling in the opening credits? I don't know. But I do feel like at this point, as I'm learning the north, south, east, west... I should do a quick apology to the women that came before this course. Has anyone had some bad oral sex lately that felt like maybe they didn't know where things were? Okay, this is for you. You were great. And I'm really sorry. High school was a crazy time, you know? I don't know that the back of my car was the best, but I know I could have known more about where your clit was. <laughs> the second chapter of the course, fucking mind-blowing. This is it. It's technique, pressure, comma, and maybe penetration. And Lisa's an educator. I have gone from full-on skeptically excited to like I'm being baptized in feminism. She goes, you need to assume every woman is a Subaru in the cold. She's <laughs> like, you don't know how much warm-up they're going to need. <laughs> but plan for the worst. <laughs> First plus five lesbian points for dropping Subaru randomly. <laughs> so that was... 
But I'm just sitting there shell-shocked. It's like, what the fuck else is coming out? I'm like writing feverishly, trying to take notes. This woman is dropping fucking dimes. But we are now practicing on our pussies. Which, she's kind of screaming like circular variations at the group of us. I assume the same reason they put Navy SEALs through Hell Week. If you can eat metaphorical rubber pussy next to five people you don't know and your friend. (laughs) While someone's explaining the finer points of makes eye contact with my friend and says toothless sucking. (laughs) You can do it anywhere. (laughs) Or anything, really, at that point. (laughs) I got so into it I forgot other people were around. And I'm like sucking, and I turn to the left, and I make eyes with a guy named Chuck. I know two things about Chuck. He likes eating pussy, and he likes growing the bushiest mustache I've ever seen. Three nights a week, I go to bed. That's what's in my head still. As she's explaining circular variations and putting on the gas and easing up and starting to feel more musical than anything I had uh, talked about in a while, she then used a metaphor. I don't even know if this one's true. She said it's like rushing a young quarterback. You want to fake it and drop back and then increase intensity. I don't know enough about football to get that reference, but I fucking got it, Lisa. Thank you. And at this point, I'm in love. It's like, hit me with another one. You're using sports? Fuck yes. (laughs) And then we started talking about penetration. And I feel like I owe just one more quick apology. (laughs) Has anyone had what they felt like was some aggressive finger action lately? (laughs) I'll just assume there is. This is a blanket apology. I don't want to get anyone in trouble with the person next to them. To the two girls that trusted me when they shouldn't have at age 21 to try and foster in a threesome. Oh, wow. As Lisa said, causing blood is not good, even a little bit. I'm really sorry about that. You know, I got too excited, too fast. I had accomplished something I shouldn't have. Uh, And if you're not ready for one, two is not recommended. I'm just going to throw that out there things have improved much better. And here's why. She then goes into the three myths about oral sex. We're through the tough part. I feel like I've graduated level one boot camp. Now, I've never been. That's probably why. (laughs) We get into myth one. Uh, Eating pussy is not a science. It's an art. Thank you. Let's test him. Sucking dick is a science, am I right? (laughs) Myth two, showers have to be involved. Man up, Lisa said, and she shouted it. Fucking terrified me. (laughs) Myth three was a bit of a bummer. No two vaginas are the same. It's like, well, I just put a lot of work into learning this one. So that's a bummer, but I'll hear you out. 
She proceeds to explain the most important thing any of us can do is sit across from our partner and ask them what they want. Ask them. Experiment with them. Smell them. Taste them. Give them the opportunity to narrate more. If alcohol is required, that's what you got to do. But you also have to listen. And she started a Q&A. And people were like, how do I know if I go faster or slower? You listen. Woman's body is like Mozart for the first time. You're going to remember where you were when it started making the sounds you wanted to hear. And it's like a lock. Unique. She said, but now, gentlemen, a demonstration. Some things are making sense. I remember signing a very important non-disclosure. And I assume this was in the brochure. What I don't understand is where the fuck everyone else was. A brief demonstration. And her partner, Pike, walks in. Yeah. It's just like Lenny Kravitz is blaring behind her. I don't know if it was. But immediately, she walked in. Lisa undressed. And I got to watch all of the metaphors start spinning off like notes of beautiful... Men aren't supposed to see this, especially straight men. You're supposed to get to watch this, and it wasn't so much sexual as it was like watching an artisan make glass. Pike knew what to do. She didn't go at that pussy first. She drew it in. She started a Subaru in the cold. I entered the class reluctantly. I left the class reluctantly. <laughs> With a much-needed lesson in listening to my partner. Thank you, Denver. Thank you, Riz. Thank you, Complex Carbohydrates. Awesome. Um, uh, okay, guys, we are going to shift gears now. This is a, a more uh, serious story that we're going into now. And I'm pretty sure that Alan uh, is pretty new to this kind of story. He's, he's done some comic book sort of storytelling. He has a comic book out called The Burning Metronome, which is amazing. He has his own podcast called Motherfucker in a Cape about... <laughs> people from marginalized communities who are also like way into comic books so that's awesome as well uh, but we love our newcomers into this serious sharing of stories so please show a lot of love for R. Allen Brooks <laughs> Hello. So back in college, I was an asshole. <laughs> Not super, you know, like uh, an asshole with people who agreed that we were going to be assholes to each other, like we talk shit to each other and crack each other up. So maybe like 45% asshole. <laughs> in my second year, there was this dude that I used to joke around with. It was during finals. I remember I was working on my English final. I was an hour into it. This dude strolls in an hour late. He works for a little while. Then he leaves an hour early. This was Wayne Lowe. He was a Taiwanese 
cello enthusiast who was from Montana. He was fond of buzz cuts and he wore a sweatshirt all the time from his favorite hardcore band, Sick of It All. You know Sick of It All? (laughs) He wore that shit all the time. That's actually how I learned about the band. (laughs) So I saw him at dinner. He's walking into the dining hall. I was like, hey, Wayne, how'd you do on your exam? I was fucking with him. Now this time, me and Wayne were both sophomores at Simon's Rock College of Bard, which um, is a tiny school in Western Massachusetts. Uh, It was more like a summer camp than a college We were both uh, awarded the W.E.B. Du Bois scholarship because he was Taiwanese and I'm African-American and we both had academically excelled. We were both accepted into Simon's Rock after 10th grade when we were both 16. So that was kind of an odd experience to go to college so early. Now, uh, at this point in our second year, he was 18 and I was 17. We weren't super close, but, you know, we'd joke around. So when I asked him this question on the way to the dining hall, hey man, how'd you do on your exam? I expected that he would joke back with me. But instead he answered me with that tone that politicians use when they see reporters that they don't want to talk to. Fine, I did fine. He walked away. I was like, shit, I hurt his feelings. Now in Western Massachusetts, the snow doesn't tell you when Christmas is coming because it's snowy 10 fucking months out of the year. It was just really hard to get used to for me. I was from Atlanta, and I had never even been in snow. But it was close to Christmas break, so the 300-plus students at that school were getting ready for Christmas break. We were doing our exams. It was kind of a a high time. There was this one guy, Galen Gibson, who could never give a straight answer when you asked him how he was doing. I'd be like, how you doing, Galen? Chicken sandwich. (laughs) He would laugh and smile like it was so clever. He'd be like, people don't really mean it when they ask how you're doing, so I just give a meaningless answer. Now later that evening, there was a meeting in the basement of the dorm that I lived in. It was called by a black man named Floyd. I've only met one in my life. (laughs) And his wife, Trinka, who was white. They were the RDs, the uh, resident directors, the adults responsible for the dormitory. And I was an RA. And so Wayne was one of these students that I was responsible for. All the residents were supposed to be at this meeting. So I walk down the steps and I look around and I see Floyd, Trinka, the other two RAs, and the shitty TV that just got one channel. Where is everybody? So quiet I could hear the washers and dryers bumping in the other room. Floyd huffed. He says, man, because it's finals week, apparently everybody thinks they can ditch our meeting. Did you guys remind people about this meeting? Before I could answer, who comes in? Wayne. So I was happy. I thought, hey, maybe I hurt his feelings at dinner. So I greeted him really, like, openly, patted him on the back. I was like, Wayne, representing for my hall. Wayne looked around, saw there were no other students there, and he laughed. So I was like, cool, I didn't offend him at dinner. Now Wayne was a pretty quiet guy. He was uh, 5'8", 
which used to drive us crazy on the basketball court because he'd be scoring on dudes who were like 6'3", and nobody expected that from a Taiwanese kid from Montana. <laughs> also on the basketball court was the only time I ever saw Wayne talk shit. Like, he could be himself on the court in a different way than he could somewhere else. It was kind of a crazy thing, you know, like uh, some of these dudes tried to fight him because he was so good, but for the most part, Wayne kept it pretty cool. So we were sitting in that meeting with Floyd and Trinka, and it was boring as fuck. Like, I don't even remember what the meeting was about, but what I do remember is that Wayne was walking in and out of the meeting, doing his laundry to get ready to leave for Christmas. At the end of the meeting, I saw Floyd and Wayne having a very minor disagreement about some bullshit. I don't know what it was. So then I went upstairs to my dorm room, and I hear the phone ringing, so I unlock the door really quickly, and I pick it up. Hello? Yo, Brooks, get over here. I'm acting. I'm going to be in a play. This is my friend, Adafokin. Now, he never was on stage, so I had to go see this, right? So I was like, what? When? When is it happening? Ten minutes from now. Get over here. I'm at the Ark. So I was like, shit, I'm going to go see this, right? So the Ark was way across campus. There was a shortcut to the Ark. It was a field that was about a quarter mile long that was so barren and snowy and unlit that we called it Siberia. So it's nighttime, and I'm running through Siberia, slipping and sliding in the snow, stomping, breathing out steamy breath, and all that shit that happens in the snow that didn't happen where I was from in Atlanta. <laughs> and I make it to the Ark. Now, in the time that it took me to get to the Ark, Wayne went upstairs to his room. He shaved his head. He put on his sick-of-it-all sweatshirt. Then he started walking through the snow in his socks. He had an assault rifle loaded with armor-piercing bullets, and he was shooting people. Two people died. Four more were injured. This was... 1992. So, of course, I didn't know about this. I'm at the Ark, waiting for Adafokin to go on stage. None of us really know what's happening. The show isn't happening. It's just, just 20 or 30 of us students looking around. Eventually, Adafokin comes from backstage, joins us. I was like, what the fuck, man? He's like, what the fuck? I don't know. We're just waiting. They wouldn't let us leave the Ark. They wouldn't tell us what was happening. What was happening is that Wayne shot Teresa Beavers, one of our security guards, twice in the abdomen. She survived. Then Nakinyan Saez, the Spanish professor, he was driving on his way home. Wayne shot him too. The bullet went through the car into Nakinyan's jaw and it killed him. Then Galen Gibson, the chicken sandwich guy. He was studying in the library. Some other students ran in. They uh, were screaming about an accident because they didn't really know what was happening. Galen ran outside to see if he could help. Wayne shot him in the chest and in the side. Killed him. Wayne shot several more people. And then, according to some reports, when he was cornered by the cops, he pointed the rifle at his head and squeezed the trigger. Either way, the gun jammed because he had bought the wrong size bullets. So Wayne was arrested. 
As the details of the story unfolded to me, I felt this floating feeling like, like I was outside of my body. I felt numb, like I could hear my heartbeat thumping, thumping from another room. I had just been joking with Wayne a half an hour ago before he started killing people. So what the fuck happened? People I knew had died and they had been murdered by somebody that I liked. They didn't let us back on campus for a couple of days. You know, the police had to do their thing. So I'm just kind of floating around town like a ghost. I ended up staying on the couch of some girls I knew in town. This is before cell phones were ubiquitous. So I had to borrow their phone with the calling card to call my mother in Atlanta and tell her what happened. I woke her up. I know she couldn't have imagined that she sent her son from Atlanta to the mountains of Western Massachusetts to be in a school shooting. I'm not even sure that she fully registered what I told her. So although my parents were divorced, I assumed that my mother would call my father, who was an editor at USA Today, and tell him what happened. When I got back into my room, after being gone a couple of days, I had these messages on my answer machine from my father. Alan, I'm seeing news about a shooting at your school. Are you all right? Call me and let me know. Alan, are you okay? Call me. Alan, please call me. He'd seen the news and didn't know if I was dead. I still feel these stabs of guilt whenever I think of the despair in my father's voice that I didn't think to call him too. Now, after some of the shock wore off, we're all confused. We're trying to figure out what happened. Like, how did this happen on our quaint little campus? Galen's father launched on a search for answers that took him so far as to eventually have Wayne's parents over to his house. He went on to write a book about Galen's death. Now, remember, this is before the internet was everywhere, so mostly what I had was rumors to go off of. The press really did make a lot out of Wayne's sweatshirt, the sick-of-it-all shirt. There were these photos on the front pages where they had him framed in that sick-of-it-all shirt, which he was arrested in, and then the headline would be, school shooter, sick-of-it-all. Eventually, the band had to issue a statement condemning Wayne and all that he had done. Some of the rumors were that Wayne was a skinhead because of his buzz cuts, that he wanted to kill the RDs because they were an interracial couple. The idea of a Taiwanese skinhead seemed a little unlikely to me. <laughs> and also, you know, I'd never experienced from Wayne the type of racism that I'd experienced growing up in the South. So I, I just doubted those rumors. Plus, he did not shoot the RDs. He just shot the people who randomly crossed his path. Now, this isn't to absolve Wayne of any guilt. He did buy that rifle. He did order those armor-piercing bullets over the phone next day. I have to have these by tomorrow. That's how he was quoted in the police report. Wayne was convicted for two life sentences, and that's where he still is today after the police had done their thing and I got back into my room, I snuck into Wayne's dorm room. 
It was a weird thing to do, but I think it was my way of trying to figure out what happened. By some accident, the room key that I had been given that year was a skeleton key for the whole dorm. I discovered that earlier in the year when I randomly tried it on a supply closet. I didn't pay for paper that whole year. So I waited till everyone was asleep. Around 4 a.m., I creeped to Wayne's dorm room, put the key in, unlock it. It was a single small room, so I didn't even have to step in. I could just flip on the light and look. Wayne's half-packed suitcase was still on his bed. The folded laundry he had been doing in the meeting with us, stamped envelopes, applications to colleges that he wanted to transfer to. There it was again, my heartbeat thumping, thumping in the distance. That numb feeling was back, running down my face and then into my body. I thought that looking in his room might make things a little more clear for me, but it just made things more confusing. Obviously, Wayne wanted to continue with his life. So what happened in the half hour between the last time I ever saw him and when he started killing people? What did he think he was doing? So the years went by. I grew into adulthood. I thought very rarely about Wayne. In 2010, it occurred to me that I could Google him. I don't know why I never thought of that before. (laughs) So I did, and I found websites that were fan sites for serial killers. That's right, fan sites for serial killers that featured Wayne. I found some sites where they were selling the art that he made from prison. I also found some of the newspaper stories from the time of the shooting, which I had never gotten an opportunity to read. Apparently, Wayne had been so convinced that he had gotten a divine message to kill these people that when his lawyers tried to mount an insanity defense, he screamed at them. You need to investigate these people and figure out why heavenly power wanted them dead. There are also threads in these stories of him being a skinhead and launching into racist tirades before the shooting. I guess I really didn't know what to do with that. After seven years in prison, Wayne read the book that Galen's father had written about Wayne killing Galen. In a New York Times interview, Wayne said that this was the first time he started to feel that he might have done something wrong. And I want to say that again. After seven years in prison, that was the first time that he felt that he might have done something wrong by killing these people. He eventually wrote a letter to Galen's father, Gregory Gibson. In it, he said things like, I just finished reading your book. It was a good book, though I don't think you need to hear that from me because you didn't need to write it. I mean, if it wasn't for my horrible act. Wayne was still convinced that some supernatural force told him to kill these people. He just thought maybe now it might be satanic. He still denied any possibility of mental illness. In another interview, shortly after the 2007 Virginia Tech shooting, a reporter interviewed Wayne. The reporter felt like there were a lot of similarities. A single Asian shooter on a college campus, so he went to talk to Wayne. In this interview, Wayne tried to present himself as a 
dispassionate academic, like an expert on school shootings. He said almost proudly, I was the first school shooter, you know. And there it was again, that distant heartbeat thumping, thumping from another room. I felt numbness, and then horror, and then disgust. To read this stuff about someone that I used to know should be almost 20 years in prison, probably hadn't done anything to help, but was Wayne always this deranged and I just didn't know it? It's now been 25 years since that shooting and I still don't really know. What I do know is that I probably survived that day because I got a phone call that made me run to the other side of campus. And I'm thankful for that. But I guess I feel like I don't know what people around me are capable of. Thank you guys. This is Risk. This is Future Islands behind me now, and we just heard from R. Allen Brooks. Hey, have you guys heard of HelloFresh? HelloFresh is the meal kit delivery service that makes cooking so much more fun, and you can focus on the whole experience, not just the final plate. Each week, HelloFresh creates new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions designed to take around 30 minutes for everyone from novices to seasoned home cooks short on time. The freshest ingredients measured to the exact quantities you need so there's no waste. HelloFresh employs two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe to ensure it's nutritionally balanced. They deliver your food to you in a recyclable, insulated box for free. They're now offering light spring meals, and they've just introduced breakfast options. I am someone who is rather terrified about cooking. I went with their vegetarian options, and man, oh man, 
three delicious meals out of one box. Tacos, a pizza, these veggie skewers. Holy camoles, such delicious food. And they really do make it makeable with just delicious ingredients that you're going to love to eat. Simple recipes you'll love to cook. Get cooking for less than $10 a meal. For $30 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Risk 30 when you subscribe. That's $30 off your first week of deliveries. HelloFresh.com. Enter Risk 30 when you subscribe. There's all kinds of options. The classic box, the veggie box, the family box. New recipes are being created each week. So get on over there to HelloFresh.com. And remember that offer code, RISK30. Let's get back to the Denver show now. Our next story comes to us from comedian Jared Yui, who you can find at jared.live. No, no, no. There's no dot .com. It's just dot .live. <laughs> Here he is now, Jared Yui, with a story we call Hot for Teacher. Thank you. I just tried to get off my sweatshirt backstage and I was <laughs> unable to do it. I was like a manatee having a nightmare back there. I was whirling around. So I'm just going with it. I feel like Mr. Rogers adjusting all my. Is everybody ready? Do feel good? Can you just make a bunch of freaking noise? Because this is a great. Thank you. What a great room. A great room. There's a police officer back there and I appreciate his service and I. I was watching him, and he's this buff dude, you know, all-American police officer dude, and his arms are folded, and I'm wondering, how much weird shit does he have to listen to at these events? <laughs> he goes home to his wife, and like, another shooting? Like, no, some guy got hit in the ass with a cattle prod, and it's like, <laughs> so, okay, here we go. I'm going to start this baby now. What I'm about to tell you should not have happened to a kid like myself. I was your typical actually kind of generic Colorado country kid. Pasty white, few freckles, husky in areas, my mother might say defensively. <laughs> totally husky would have been more appealing, but I had like big lady thighs and a training bra bosom. And I did have one rather unique trait, something that set me apart. And this would be highlighted by a teacher who would have to call my mother and implore her to get me to bathe more. Yeah, you're clear over there, too. I got called out as the stinky kid. I know, and this is not a stigma that's easy to crawl out from under. But I would get help in life from another teacher who would arrive in our tiny Colorado town a couple years later. I was like 15 or 16, she was 30, 31. And immediately people would tell me, you know, we think Mrs. Kemper likes you. And I was young and still a bit stinky and was not gifted with the flagella to feel out these situations. I would start to gather some clues though. 
as we were in the whitewashed walls of Algebra II class, and she had no trouble showcasing her favoritism. Here we're in there learning how to optimize quadratics under the watchful eye of Mr. Koch, a by-the-book numbers guy. He still wore a pocket protector, a strict disciplinarian. But his icy resolve would melt in the warm imperative of this new and rather hot teacher who had moved into our town. She would breeze in and Mr. Koch would say, oh, Mrs. Kemper is here because there's a special student in this class and she wants to take him and start a creative writing program in our school. And I was like, I feel bad for that sucker. That's embarrassing, getting pulled out of class. Well, she would stand up there and I'd start to recognize her as a woman. Like, she had this summer dress that was clinging to her forward momentum as she paced back and forth. And she started piling on the superlatives which were kind of leaning in my direction, but I didn't feel it yet. She was like, he's very funny and kind and a writer. I want him to be a great writer. And I was looking around the room to see who was going to have to befall this fate. And she stepped forward and her finger, like a wand that would alter the rest of my life, pointed at me. I tried to keep it cool. And Mr. Koch, who would not bend the rules of decorum, suddenly broke it by saying, Jared, you don't have to do any more math. You're going with her to start the creative writing class. And suddenly I missed this little Napoleonic complex ridden math teacher. I wanted his stability. I wanted weird numbers and letters that didn't add up in nature. I wanted this. And she pulled me out of class. I tried to be cool, but I think I looked like a nervous middle school girl hugging her Twilight books as I scurried away with what would be my future. I was starting to figure out that she dug me a bit one of the clues was, would my creative writing contemporaries recognize she gave me an A for an original poetry reading when in fact I just recited the lyrics to Tom Petty's Free Falling? <laughs> I was starting to put it together. But it wasn't until we went on our class camping trip. We went from the cold climbs of the Siberia of Colorado and we loaded up on a bus and we went down to Buena Vista, the Arkansas Valley, and we floated the Arkansas River and it was pretty much fun for everyone, except for me, because this teacher started staring at me. She was a very fancy woman and she had fancy Ray-Ban sunglasses. We weren't used to so much fancy. This was the kind of woman that would pull up to the gas station in our little town and quickly fuel up her sob to get to Steamboat Springs. We were told not even to look at these people in the eye. And suddenly she's staring at me. My friends were leaping around and having a gay time on the camping trip. And the whole time I was like, prey, terrified by this wise owl peering down on me. And you know, I was young enough that I was like, am I in trouble? Like, why is she looking at me? You know, a lifeguard, like they point their sunglasses at you, but they could be lazy eyeing it somewhere else. Like she just, the whole time. So we get home from this camping trip and we're all weary and I'm dragging this gunny sack of camping gear to my mom's hand-me-down 1976 Oldsmobile station wagon, a car up to that point that had not gotten me laid. And I'm loading my stuff up and the teacher arrives and she's like, hey, could you give me a ride home? And in my head, I'm like, I think you live 200 yards away. But I was a nice kid. That's why she liked me. And so, in the awkward echo of a car the size of a gymnasium, we bounced towards her home. And I let her out of the car, and she was gone into the night. 
and I clank the massive Oldsmobile automatic stick into reverse, the transmission engaged, and I started her back out when she came back out of her house. And she's like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Uh, my husband's out of town at a mountain bike race. Maybe you should come in. Do you know where this is going to? You have this? Now, let me try to explain to you the significance of that suggestion. That was the first time I'd ever heard it in my life. Had she come out and said, hey, I have a bunch of rabid baboons that want to play cribbage. You want to stay? I would have heard that just as much as what she just said. And in the vacuum of my lack of experience and absolute absence of wisdom, I said, sure, great. Now, there's a lapse from getting to my mom's car into the teacher's living room, but that's where I found myself, pounding bush light. And I swear to God, she profiled me as a hick kid. She was a craft beer lady, and I didn't drink very much, so I was liquid fast. Bush light's new slogan could be helping you handle really fucking awkward situations since 1870. <laughs> I swilled this like carbonated Gatorade, and then we sat on her love seat which had long ago given up on supporting people. You've sat in these seats. We just slid together right in the middle. And I was young enough where I was like thinking, huh, our butts are touching. <laughs> and that, my friends, is a gateway to crazier things. And she writhed her arm around mine. And she said, wow, you're strong. Ironically, not enough to get out of the situation. <laughs> And we watched Saturday Night Live together, and I watched it in a way that I'd never watched the comedy show. I watched it intensely. I watched it praying on the inside. I didn't want it to end, because if once it was over, I was going to have to figure out the next move. I just like, please, God, you gestures of my salvation, do not go away. And it comes out of commercial, and you know that part where you think it's going to be another funny bit, and it's just them all hugging on stage. You know, they're all happy, they're successful. I'm like, shit. And so I turn, I'm going to say something to her. And by the time I turn to her, she's got her shirt off. And it was terrifying. I mean, she was amazing. Her body was beautiful. But the bra, she could see that I'd been there before and tangled with one of these things, which is like trying to solve a Rubik's Cube with your eyes closed. And so as a good teacher, she guided my hands around her warmth and helped me set her free. <laughs> Just a, an important observation, the difference between an inexperienced lover and an experienced lover. An experienced lover doesn't talk. He just starts loving. An inexperienced lover, he starts to commentate weird stuff. <laughs> Things were just tourettes out of my head. I remember telling her, I'm going to touch your breasts. <laughs> like, like some weird anatomical audiobook that at once was guiding and asking for permission. And then I ended up in this strange holding pattern where I was just swirling with my right index finger around her nipple. And in my head, I was like, God, I hope this is a thing grown-ups do. I feel I'm, I'm on my way to another base. I think this could take me places. Well, she knew to take control. So she reached into my Zubaz sweatpants. I didn't know if you remember these things. They were like Richard Simmons meets MC Hammer, and I was wearing them. And she grabbed me. And again, inexperienced, I said, that's my penis. You know? Like the name of a canceled 80s show or something. My voice cracked. And 
I remember I wanted to be kind of funny about, you know, break the tension. That's my penis, you know, and I didn't. And soon we're on the floor. Now, I would not fully understand what was happening until I would burn my leg on the radiator of her ancient ass house. And it would singe me to consciousness. And I would exit this amazing woman and scramble through her house doing that post-coital spiral where I'm grabbing clothes and apologizing all the way to my mom's station wagon, which I've sullied with my mere presence. And I would bounce the way home, alternately cursing myself and congratulating myself. And this is where you live in this kind of weird-ass affair. Swagger and guilt. Like a terrible rap duo in my head. I would deal with swagger and guilt. The swagger would take me to sexy places with her. Like when I would go over to their house for Christmas. And by there, I mean she and her husbands. And by Christmas, I mean a traditional holy holiday where we celebrate the birth of the baby Jesus. And by visiting, I mean screwing her in her guest bedroom after her husband had fallen asleep. You know him? Because I still don't know what he knows. He would give me a shirt that Christmas that said Achtung on it, which in German means danger. Still waiting. I could be sniped tonight. So let me give you some advice here, and you may already know this, but when you're having an affair with your married teacher, maybe don't go to Mexico together to celebrate it. Oh, it's more amazing than you think. Not only would we go to Mexico together, but to raise the money, we would start a school club. Because apparently there's some fiduciary benefits to doing such a thing. Meanwhile, swagger's trembling and guilt is starting to step up. And so since we started a school club, other kids from the school could join the club. And two girls giddily joined the club. They had no idea what they were walking into. And the four of us went to Mexico for the better part of a month. <sighs> yeah. I don't remember any of that Spanish either. I'd, God. And so the first part was amazing. The first night in Mexico City was amazing. I remember from emerging betwixt her legs, having discovered a new way to pleasure a woman. And she glowed upon me as an instructor would be of, proud of her student. And it was fantastic. It was like some kind of twisted musical montage as we drove buses through Mexico. But a couple weeks in, I was coming to pieces. I grew up in like a sex guilty family. My dad had kids really young, it jacked up his life. And so he would always tell us, he would tell us the worst thing. If you get a girl pregnant, I'll twist your dick off. Oh. Right. And I was always like, are you going to touch it? Like, do you have a, like a robot hand or something? But I had that with me the whole way and I started to come to pieces. And so one night we had a fight and I stormed out of the hotel room and I went to the city center in Puerto Penasco and I got my hair cut and I fell in love with the woman who got my hair cut and I told her I was gonna marry her and her family and I, we celebrated on the town. We drowned the Mexican evening in Modelo and I stormed back to the hotel and I was like, I'm marrying someone else. Like, yeah, we both have significant others now. And I was losing and the wheels were coming off. And the next morning, I just went out and I was hungover and I felt bad and I sat on the sand and overlooked the Pacific. And you don't know how things are going to end. You just don't know. You can't worry about it because it's just going to end. And I had no idea that this would end with a fart. <laughs> she would come out and sit next to me. 
we'd sit quietly and she would start to say something. And in starting to say something, Newton's third law pushed out a little gas. She blew sand and I was horrified. And I didn't realize this, but at 17, at least me, I wasn't ready for the truth that women are biological equals. At the time, there were fantastical creatures that you put on a pedestal and they make you do weird stuff. So I just got up and walked along the gassy shores of our reality and I left. And I went directly to the room of the two girls who were with us. Swagger was back. And I told one of the girls the whole story. Whole thing, which was amazing foreplay apparently, because then like two beautiful youth, we hooked up in their hotel room's bathroom, 2,000 miles away from our childhood. And I was feeling pretty good about it until I got back home to America. And I was, I was really into the girl that I hooked up with, but I was like, you know what? She's not into me. That was a Mexico thing. She was sad and desperate, whatever. And it turned out she wanted to be with me and I didn't call her and she was mad about that. So at some prairie party, she climbed up on a monster truck and told everybody everything. Yeah. I'm not here to spread any malice about this teacher. People always ask me, did she go to prison? And I'm like, why the fuck would that happen? It was the most amazing extracurricular activity ever. <laughs> she should be given some kind of accommodation. I mean, she taught me a lot of stuff. We learned, read books together. Uh, Tom Robbins, she introduced me to. We read Siddhartha Gautama and discussed it. It was really a weird relationship. Instead of Socrates with a boy, it was just a beautiful woman with a boy. So there was a lot of good things that she taught me. As a matter of fact, it would alter my life so that I would not go to the school in Michigan where my grandma had wanted me to go, but I would go to her alma mater in Durango, Fort Lewis College. There's a few of us here. We'll go panhandle together after this. No, it's a great school. I would go there and ironically meet my wife. But it's funny, I, uh, my dad just found out recently and he called me, he was like, Jesus, Jared. And he was equal parts proud and bewildered. And he said, I uh, thought I was sending you to school to learn. And I told him, oh, I was, I was. Thank you. My name is Jared Ewey. Thank you for coming to the Bluebird Theater. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We have just one more story for tonight. Uh, if you don't know, we also teach storytelling, the same sort of workshopping that we do with the folks who get up on stage and share here. We do with people one-on-one -on -one over Skype or in you know workshops that you can actually download videos of, and that's all at thestorystudio.org. You should really check it out because we would love to come back to Denver as soon as possible. And that means we would love for more of you guys to pitch us your stories and work on them with us. So check that out. Now, uh, this story, the story we're about to hear, I first heard on the Narrators podcast. I was telling you, you got to check out this show in town called The Narrators. Their podcast is also phenomenal. And the storyteller we're about to hear from, she also has a storytelling show in town. It's called We Still Like You. It's every second Friday 
at the comedy Room Room, and she's also in the comedy group The Pussy Bros. <laughs> Please welcome to the stage, Rachel Weeks. <laughs> Hi guys, thank you guys so much for coming out to this awesome show. I'm so excited to be here. And I love telling this story, so thank you guys for listening. So uh, after I graduated from college in Des Moines, Iowa, uh, hell yeah. (laughs) After I graduated, I wanted to spend some time in Des Moines, so I moved into a house that was about two blocks from my university with four women uh, who had been living in that house for about two years. The house was called Park Place, and the women were the best. I didn't know them super well, but I knew that they were my kind of people, you know? And I knew that they wanted to have the kind of summer that I wanted to have. So we did. And that summer, uh, Kelsey, Kylie, Maddie, Aaron, and I uh, spent the summer smoking and drinking and laughing. We snuck into neighborhood pools, and we rode our bikes to the farmer's market, and we went to happy hours and concerts. But most of the time, we just hung out on the porch and drank alone, you know? It was a lazy and easy and fun summer. It was perfect. But uh, the summer was ending, and so was our lease. So... We all had to move on. And uh, Kelsey, who was one of my housemates, suggested that she and I continue our jobs for another year uh, and move into an apartment together in downtown Des Moines. Kelsey and I had grown very close uh, that summer. We had a lot of things in common. I was in like an even-keeled, budding stand-up comedian, and she was like a hot-headed, politically-minded writer, you know? She was the kind of person that open, her opening line at a bar is like, so tell me what you're passionate about. Intense, an intense person. And then she would tell you like all of the things that were wrong with the education system in this country and why every 20-something should be reading Kafka. You know, just a lot. Uh, but she was the coolest. I liked her a lot. And that summer, uh, we, spent, we spent most of the summer just like laying on the couches on the front porch, you know, talking about religion and politics and music. I told her all the jokes I wanted to run at an open mic that night, and she tried to convince me to switch to environmentally friendly, all-natural shampoo paste. (laughs) Like when she came home from her waitressing job that she hated, I was the one that reminded her that, you know, not everyone is a stupid, ungrateful, piece of shit, not tipping uh, asshole, you know. (laughs) If you're a writer, you know that writers don't actually like writing. Kelsey did, which was strange. She kept this like a ledger slash diary of all of the things that she had done for every day for nine years. Like every person she had coffee with, every show she watched, every beer she had tried, she kept track of it in this creepy book. But I asked her about it and she was like, well, what if I need to write a book someday? I'm like, I I guess. We had a lot in common, so we decided that, yeah, we're going to, we should move in together. So on July 15th, we signed a lease, and on July 18th, Kelsey was hit by a car. Yeah, not great. Um, I was at work, and I got a strange call from Kylie, who was one of our housemates who was out of town. She said that Kelsey's mom had called, that Kelsey had been hit by a car, that she was in the ICU at Mercy Medical Center, and we had to go. 
I mean, I was shocked. It was the middle of a regular day. I stood up. I ran to Erin's desk, who worked in the same building as I did. And by the time I got there, she was already crying and stuffing her things into a bag. We rushed to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, Erin read me details from a report she had found online. It said that a runner had been hit at the intersection of 31st and Kingman. It said the driver had been 19 years old, driving without a license, ran a red light was likely texting. It said the car had been totaled, the windshield shattered, and that the runner had been thrown 32 feet. By the time we got to the hospital, Kelsey had been there for about 20 minutes. Um, we were directed to a room in, off the side of the ICU that had a sign on it that said, the crying room, uh, which is cruel. The room was empty for the most part, except for a very creepy three-foot concrete statue of Mother Teresa. No pupils. Uh, Very frightening. But as we rounded the corner, we recognized a familiar face. Uh, Kelsey's younger brother was already in the room. The three of us waited together in dim lighting for about two hours while they cleaned Kelsey up and dressed her wounds It took two hours to make Kelsey look presentable, right? It took two hours to wash the blood and dried leaves from her hair and to sew up the gashes on her face and her head and her legs. It took two hours for them to wrap her arm and her foot and to fit her for a boot and eventually a neck brace. And even after two hours, she looked horrible. Her face was, it looked uh, like swollen. It was all scratched up, and she was wearing this neck brace. It was pushing up her face. She looked like a turtle whose head was too big for a shell. And they had washed her hair and braided a three-strand braid right out of the top of her head, which is kind. Um, It's cute. (laughs) She looked so bad. It didn't even look like Kelsey, you know, like her skin was too gray and her her body was too limp and her hair was too... (laughs) Cindy Lou Who or something. Um, We joked that Kelsey would have been mad that they didn't use her environmentally friendly shampoo paste. uh, And we waited. We learned very quickly that she had fractured her neck, hip, arm, and her ankle, and that she had suffered uh, minor brain shearing, which is essentially a scrape on the outside of the brain, is how they explained it to us. The thing about brain injuries is that they can't really promise you anything. They're like, well, recovery is possible, but we'll see. The brain is very complicated. So we left the ICU to get the house ready because Kelsey's family was rushing from Illinois. They were driving across the country to us. And very quickly, Park Place turned into this like menagerie of sadness and responsibility. We started cooking and cleaning and Kelsey's family was living out of her living room. Her mom and her dad and her youngest brother were all in town. We had started a GoFundMe uh, to raise money for her mounting medical debts. And we had to move out in two weeks. All you can think about, really, is Kelsey at that point. It took two days for her to regain consciousness. It took about a week for her to speak for the first time. And when she did, she was raw and she was angry She turned to her mom, who had been sleeping on the couch in her hospital room every night and every day, and she said, go fuck yourself. 
Let me out of here. Let me out. Let me out of this place. Let me out. One afternoon, she punched a nurse. But mostly she just slept for that first week. It was awful. By the end of the week, though, we had been going to work and coming immediately to the hospital, spending all night in the hospital. And it was one particular night where Kelsey's family had gone out for food, and it was just me and Maddie with Kelsey. She, she signaled to us that uh, she needed to go to the bathroom. So the two of us, being the trained medical professionals that we are, tried to untangle her from the sheets and sort of lug her onto this wheelie bucket potty that we couldn't find the brakes on, so it kept rolling away. She was tangled in sheets, and she slumped over my shoulder, and she goes, what are you doing? (laughs) And that was the first time I laughed in that room. That was the first time I saw, like, light behind her eyes, you know, and the whole time her vagina was completely out. Uh, (laughs) Whole time, all natural, yeah, just... Hospital gowns are a nightmare. It, when, the more she talks, the more you kind of realize what the effects of the accident had on her brain. It was like they had scraped away the filter on her brain. You know, she was just saying everything that came to her mind. I came to her bedside and I said, Kelsey, would you like apple juice, applesauce, or pudding? And she looked at me and said, well... It doesn't fucking matter because you're wearing a Hobby Lobby dress. (laughs) It was this dress, if you hadn't figured that out. The next day, uh, she detailed her sexual history to her 15-year-old brother. So, just letting everything loose. The more and more she talked, the more it was apparent. So she was swearing more obviously. Her long-term memory she had some problems with. Her short-term memory was completely kaput. We'd asked her every day, we're like, do you know where you are? Do you know what happened to you? And sometimes she remembered. She would say something like, uh, yeah, some cunt hit me with her car. Uh, and you're like, easy. Sometimes she'd give a strange answer, like, I fought a lion and I lost. Yeah, but he shattered his windshield, so it's okay. Um, Most of the time, she didn't know. She couldn't remember. She kept asking us to break her out. She was like, we gotta break out of here. Let's go. I got a party to go to tonight. We had to remind her that the party she was planning had happened a week and a half ago because she had no short-term memory. When we told her, she looked so sad and confused You know, like we had told her her dog died, but she didn't have a dog. Like she was just couldn't process it all the way. And that last week, they did lots of cognitive testing with her. They asked her questions to kind of gauge how her brain is improving. A lot of them were just basic questions that people should know the answer to. And usually she knew the answer on those, the long-term stuff. But she was always an asshole about it. (laughs) They asked her, who discovered America? And she said, not Christopher Columbus. (laughs) They asked her, um, what was the cause of the American Civil War? And she said, well, a lot of people think it's slavery, but really it was a lot more political than that. (laughs) 
Sometimes she would get stuff wrong and it would confuse and like hurt her, you know? The doctor came in and he asked a very simple task. He said, Kelsey, I need you to list some fruits. She said, hell yeah. All right, let's do it. Fruits, kiwi, papaya, turnip. Turnip's a fruit. And we're like, hmm, hmm. All right, uh, pineapple, Penelope Cruz. And she'd look confused and hurt like somebody had made her say it. And then she was just like, orange? They asked her, Kelsey, can you list some animals? And she said, yes, ready to go. Here we go. Scorpion, weird first. Scorpion. Tortoise. Wait, are these supposed to be water animals? And we said, no, but neither of those are water animals. She's like, oh, well, that's easy then. Camel, Penelope Cruz, horse. <laughs> it's like her brain just wasn't putting the right twigs together. I don't know. I'm not a brain guy. Brain guy, that's what they call them. Brain injuries, though, they take a very long time to heal, and it's really unpredictable to how long it's going to take. The doctor told her that it would be about six months to a year, and she would need like significant medical help. So I was forced to uh, end our lease. We ended up breaking the lease, and um, they ended up transferring her to an inpatient care facility in Illinois, uh, which is close to her family. So on the day that she was set to be transferred, we came in to say goodbye. And I said, Kelsey, they're taking you to Illinois today for the inpatient care facility, but I'm gonna come visit you. She looked at me so confused. She was like, why don't you wanna live with me anymore? What happened? Because you have to remember, Kelsey had a brain injury, but she didn't know. Like, to her, her day wasn't that she was getting in an ambulance and driving five and a half hours to Illinois to an inpatient care facility. To her, she was going to a party that night. So it's impossible to explain to her the whole situation. Every time I tell this story, I get kind of worried that maybe it's not my story to tell, that it's Kelsey's story. She should tell you she's a writer. But then, you know, I remember... She doesn't remember any of this. She lost about three weeks of her life. She has no memory, which means there is a three-week gap in her creepy nine-year-old ledger. (laughs) And, you know, I think, like, maybe I can help her fill in the gap, you know, just in case she writes a book, in case she actually does do it. But, you know, the best thing about this story is that it goes on. Because Kelsey lives in Ecuador now. She's teaching English. In January, she went to the Patagonia Mountains and she camped and hiked for two weeks. In February, she posted a picture from, of a sunset on the beach in Uruguay. She spent two months as a farmhand in the United States just because, you know, it gave her like this, this appreciation for life that she had to get out there and do it. And the two of us, were, I still consider her a very good friend. We did end up living together in Des Moines for about a year. And during that time, she was studying uh, for the GRE. 
I remember she was looking at all these flashcards. She was trying to learn vocabulary. And vocabulary was particularly hard for her at this time. Because Kelsey, at that point, for all intents and purposes, seemed normal. But there were small things that she struggled with. So memory activities, naturally. She looked at me and she was like, I can't tell if I would have been bad at this a year ago or if I would have been bad at this at any time. I can't tell. And she was frustrated and irritated, but a couple days later, she looked at me and she said, you know, I want to compare myself before the accident and after and be mad about it, but I don't think I really even could. You know, there's no me then. There's just me now. Thank you, guys. That's my story. I'm Rachel Wheat. this week's episode folks this is fan farlow behind me now and we just heard from rachel weeks here are the places that risk is appearing next on june 9th we will be back in portland oregon come on out portland june 9th at revolution hall on june 10th we will be back in seattle at the vera project come on out seattle june 10th at the Vera Project in Seattle. June 11th, we are in Vancouver at St. James Hall. So don't miss us, Vancouver, on June 11th at St. James Hall. On June 17th, we're back at the Bootleg Theater in Los Angeles. And on June 30th, on June 30th, we are at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Now, that was a, a change of date there for our, our Bell House show. It, 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 so make sure to make a note of that. It's June 30th at the Bell House in Brooklyn. Now, July 1st, we are at the Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts, and we're still taking pitches for that one. The theme is revolting for our July 1st 
Mass Mocha Show in North Adams, Massachusetts. On July 8th, we're in Washington, D.C. at the Black Cat. July 8th, the theme that night is one of a kind. Still taking pitches for that. July 15th, we're in Philly at the World Cafe Live. The theme that night is Revelation. Still taking pitches there. And on September 9th, we are back in Salt Lake City, Utah, at the Urban Lounge. The theme that night is Unexpected. Now, when I say we're still taking pitches, where do you go? You go to risk-show.com slash submissions. There's a whole page explaining how to pitch us. There's a little video of me describing how it works. So for all of those tour dates where I said we're still taking pitches, please go ahead and pitch us and you too could be a part of the show just like some of these people you heard on today's episode were in Denver. If you love Risk, one of the best things you can do is spread the word. Tell your friends how to find it, how to download it. Look us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Risk Show. Comment on us on iTunes. Encourage your friends to pitch us as well. And if you're interested in learning a little bit more about storytelling, we teach storytelling at thestorystudio.org. We have one-on-one -on -one training we do over Skype. We have video courses you can download and take in your own time. We do corporate workshops with all kinds of big corporate clients. And we also have in-person workshops in New York, Minneapolis, Los Angeles. There's a lot to learn at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. The walls, the walls are coming down. The hair and now is coming round. It's on the light down. The ships, the ships are coming in. The gray eyes are wearing thin. And there is nothing was a very nice episode. But it's over now.